Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. I'm Natalie, and my pronouns are she, her. And today we have with us... Hi, I am Christopher Denoso. My pronouns are he, him. I'm a speech language pathologist in Jersey City. In Jersey. Yeah, Joyzy. Joyzy. <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> Phonetic. What's that in IPA? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, and a capital I, maybe? Probably, it's an oi. oi? Yeah. Or the backward C and an I. Joyzy. Joyzy. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome. We are so glad to have you here. Chris is very unique in the sense that he uh, was able to access our uh, website and do a nomination through that. So for yes. those of you that don't know... Um, the queerslp.com does have nominations where you can nominate yourself or another professional to be on our show. So check that out because you could be the next Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, I think we should start off by just starting at the very beginning. Tell us kind of about your, your life as a young person. So, ooh, big one. <laughs> Born and raised in Jersey City. I've lived with like my mom and sister my entire life. In terms of like my journey and like my discovery and just being gay and having like having doing that that ooh, that was a that was a rough one. <laughs> Mostly just because like in my head it was just like complete denial. It's like, I'm not, I'm not gay. Like I never had anything against that, but I'm just like, that's not me. I'm not like, I, I don't know what I want yet, but like, I'm, I'm just not gay. So were and, you very, very young? Like how, how yeah. old were you when you started to kind of have an inkling? Ooh, fourth grade. Same. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> fourth grade me didn't realize it then, but like me today, like knows like, that's when it happened. Mm -hmm. so I was just like, nah, it's just, I'm not, I'm not gay. And then throughout like life and school and all that stuff, uh, like everyone just kept questioning me. And that's when it got like more and more uncomfortable. And like, I was just like, oh, I'm just being picky or like, I just don't know what I like yet or what have you. And I never really thought about it. Um, I was being, I was like, my family was very like study driven. So like, I, I was just so focused on my studies. I was just like, I'm just, relationships aren't for me right now. I need to like pass this test. I have. <laughs> and then college happened. I have a question with everything related to LGBTQ. You know, we always talk about intersectionality. So as far as the, the multiple culturals that make up somebody, um, could you tell us a little bit, like, are, did you grow up religious? What is your ethnic background? And how did those impact you coming to terms with your sexuality? Yeah, so my family is originally from Chile, South America. Both my mom and my dad are from Santiago, Chile. I don't really look it. I'm very fair-skinned for people who can't see. 
So anytime someone starts speaking to me in Spanish and automatically knows I'm, I know Spanish, I'm just like, oh, you knew, you noticed. <laughs> and I love it. But yeah, my grandma, my grandparents are very religious, but I'm very happy that my mom wasn't. She, she tried to be very religious and like we would go to church, but at some point she was just like, do you want to go to church? No? Okay. <laughs> she, she was very okay with that. And it's not that I have anything against religion. It's just, it was during a time where I had that connection with like, if people in this community question my sexuality, things might not be good. So I, I kind of pushed myself away from that community because I was just too afraid of what might happen. Mm -hmm. What's the attitude in Chilean society? Like, is there a, a different attitude towards LGBT people? Is that something that you had exposure to? Not really. Growing up, I used to go to Chile every year with my mom just to visit my family. And homosexuality was never really talked about. But anytime it did come up in conversation, it was brought up as like a negative mm -hmm. or a joke. And a lot of that stuck with me. And even now, I haven't been back to Chile in a long time, but they're only recently becoming more and more open to the LGBTQ plus community. There's an amazing, amazing film called, I think it's called A, a Beautiful Woman, that talks about a trans female in Chile and the hardship that she had to go through and amazing film, but like it really showcases like the discrimination that the LGBTQ plus community faces in South America. Yeah. Um, but luckily things are changing. When you said you were pushing down kind of your feelings and everything, were there messages that you were getting from family, from peers or anything that sort of made you feel like you had to, it was just like, maybe you weren't ready. I, you know, I'm wondering like if you have any insight on that. I think it was, luckily, I, I can't say that Like I, I faced a lot of people who were just like blatantly against homosexuality or the LGBTQ plus community, but a lot of like my friends group, friend groups would just like say, that's gay or like no homo. That I grew mm -hmm. up in that type of environment where I was just like, okay, I guess this is like looked down upon, even though no one directly said anything it was always like an underlying message having some of my best friends making those types of jokes i was always afraid of the possibility of me coming out and then us no longer being friends mm -hmm. because of that yeah i think it's a huge testament to how much microaggressions can impact us even though you may not be facing like threatening examples of you know against your sexuality or gender expression but it's those little things that make you almost subconsciously try and like hide it because of, out of fear i think your experience is very common especially in that generation where it was okay to still say you know that's so gay i remember saying it you know, and just no, and, and it, and it hurt to say it, but I said it because it was just expected to fall in line to kind of like, so you don't. So I get that. Like, I mm -hmm. think that's a very common thing. I don't know when it changed <laughs> and I don't, I don't know, know if it still has changed to be honest. <laughs> I 
think probably in certain circles is probably still said. Yeah, it, it's definitely still a thing. I definitely still hear it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, was it, you know, during this time when you were young and in maybe high school or whatever, like, was it then that you decided you wanted to be a speech therapist? Or was that a later thing in college? I kind of had to like decide really quickly um, because my Hispanic mother was just like, you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> she she made the choice for me. Of course. It was, I, I was a senior, we were looking at colleges and she's like, you, we need to find a, a college that's great for medical, like the help you get to medical school. And I was just like, no. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll, we'll, we we kind of had to make a deal. I was like, okay, well, I'll go something medical, but I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a pharmacist, just because like I've always had this fear of just the potential of killing someone mm. or like being exposed to death. I was just like, I I don't want that looming over my head. So mm. I was like, therapy. I was like, okay, I'll go into therapy, just very broad. And then this is a funny, this uh, wasn't funny for me, but it's funny. (laughs) I actually went into, I actually originally decided I was going to do physical therapy. Okay. Um, During this, that time I was a big, I was very into like dancing and I really wanted to connect my, my passion for like the arts and science together. So I was like, okay, I could be like a physical therapist working with like um, performers. I know there's a lot of the, like, the easiest one that comes to my brain is like Cirque du Soleil. They have like their own physical therapists that work with their performers because like they do such intense stuff that they need someone on hand, like 24 seven, essentially. So like that was the goal until I actually started college and was in it (laughs) and realized that I don't think I could become a physical therapist the way things were going. Um, Essentially I, I went into the, the physical therapy program and I was failing nearly everything. And in the moment, I was just like, my, I thought I was like a horrible student. Like my, I was, I would go early to class. I would stay late. I would email professors. I went to study sessions. I went to tutoring. I did literally everything you could possibly think of to try and bring up my grades And then those tests just pop up in front of me. And it's just like, this has absolutely nothing to do with what I studied. And I was just failing. (laughs) And then there's a happy ending to this story. (laughs) I ended up going to the, I think, counselor, counselor, and, um, she, we were, I was discussing with her, like the other options. And she's like, how about. There was like occupational therapy and speech therapy. She's like, occupational therapy is a no-no. Like the program's booked. You know, like it's impo- nearly impossible to get into it. So I was like, okay, I guess speech therapy. Like having known nearly nothing about speech therapy. Um, but my, I went to Seton Hall University and they had a, a program where you can do education, special education, tracking speech therapy. So I was like, okay, I always thought about wanting to be a teacher. So this gives me a chance to try it out. And if I'm not a fan of it, I'm still going to speech therapy anyway. So I did that. And honestly, it was the 
best decision I ever made because I got to learn about actually teaching and figured out that it wasn't me right. during my first like semester in college. It was my professors who had absolutely no idea how to teach. Mm-hmm. They were brilliant people, very great in their fields, but they had no idea how to teach. That's so interesting for you just answered one of my first questions because I was like, it had to have not been you. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, like, what, it, what is it about the P? Yeah, I was like, yeah. the PT, I mean, if you studied so hard for PT. Hmm. And then two, nothing against OT, but the speech program was not full either. I, right? like, like, I was like, I've um, never heard of that. I've never heard of a speech therapy program it, being not, not being more full. competitive for speech than it is for OT. But okay. Go. I mean, you look yeah. young. Was it that long ago? <laughs> not really. <laughs> like, I can have, I could have believed that maybe when I was in grad school, like a program not being super competitive, but you don't look like you're my age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm 27. Um, I graduated in 2018. Okay. So that's like recent. That's really yeah. recent. That's surprising <laughs> that they had the space. I mean, I'm glad yeah. they had the space because you're here now. But hey, shout you. out to all those future SLPs. What program are we applying to you right now? Seton, Seton Hall? Seton Hall? Yeah, University? Seton Hall U- University. There you go. There might be space. <laughs> check check <laughs> it out. So, I don't know Chris anymore. They, they, they've gotten, <laughs> they've, upped their, they've upped their budget. I've spoken with a lot of like, um, students in that in that now, and they're like telling me all the stuff that they have now. I'm like, I didn't have that. No fair. <laughs> How dare you? So oh. did you did you like going to Seton Hall? No. <laughs> oh. That's a story. Well, it, that mean, sounds like why. a story. <laughs> and it, did it have anything to do with being part of the LGBTQ plus community that made it difficult? Honestly, yes. Um. The, the community of Seton Hall University, it's a very small Catholic university. Mm-hmm. Um, also very white. Mm-hmm. So it was very frat, uh, party-oriented, very Catholic-based. And I just, I'm not, I don't like it when people force me into Catholicism. Nothing, absolutely nothing against it. I've studied it. I went to Catholic school, very open to a lot of uh, beliefs. But when someone is forcing me to follow that belief, it's just like, uh, I don't, I'm not totally about it. And they say they don't do it. However, we take a course where they're taught by, uh, by Catholic priests. So some of them are very biased in their teachings. So we feel like we might as well be learning about Catholicism. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is it was more so just the community. It's just party, if you're like very white, not a lot of LGBTQ plus support there when I started. It's changed a lot, but it just, it wasn't my, I guess my vibe is the best yeah. way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So I was one of those students. I also didn't dorm. So I was kind of just in and out. I went there to take my classes and then go home. And that's pretty much how it was for me. 
I think that's a very common thing, at least for my experience as well and other people of color I've spoken to. I I personally only know mostly white people that go for the dorm experience. I don't think that people of color naturally gravitate toward that because that's an additional expense. <laughs> so. oh, I, I couldn't afford that. Like my, I live with a single, lived with a, a single mother of two and that wasn't even an option. Right. You know, guys, I, I am <laughs> as a white person, I am continuously surprised by this. <laughs> it never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that that, you know, you know, I'll own that. It never occurred, you know, never occurred to me that it, it would be an extra expense. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. interesting because and, like I yeah. I've only known white people to live in the dorms personally. And that well, is Well, yeah, a- I mean, the dorms that I went to, you know, I went to a mostly white school, but like we had all kinds of people in the dorms, but I would think yeah, I mean that it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't say that at Seton Hall, it was mostly white people who were in dorms. I know it was a pretty mixed bag of backgrounds that that did th- that participate in the dorming lifestyle. But for me, just coming where I grew up, Jersey City, when when I was growing up in Jersey City, it was actually very a very impoverished community. When I made friends in Seton Hall University, anytime I brought up the idea of visiting my town. Everyone was just like, oh, are you sure it's safe? And I'm like, yeah, it's mm. fine. <laughs> huh. um, I have, oh my gosh, this this story always infuriates me when I think back at it. But there was a time where um, I would always commute to that area of New Jersey to meet up with people. It was very like upper, upper uh communities they had much more money than people in jersey city so i would travel over there and sometimes it would be a lot like i would take train like two trains to visit my friends and i was just like hey we should come to jersey city and there was a time where it was like winter there's like a nice cheap ice skating rink near me i was like oh we should all go to jersey city to do some ice skating they're like oh i don't know it's a little far i'm not sure jersey city I was like, okay, whatever. And then later in our group chat, someone else is just like, hey, we should go ice skating over here. And everyone's like, yeah, sure. Sounds like fun. And I'm like, really? I I just suggested that. And because it's in my town that everyone thinks is bad, you want to say no, but we are willing. But if I, I would have to travel two hours to go over there. Right. Mm-hmm. So... So maybe it's less, I mean, I'll, I'll probably re, re, change my previous statement. It's more about like a, instead of it being about, you know, race or ethnicity, it's probably more of a socioeconomic yeah. difference. Yeah. Um, and also for me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, let me know if you had this or even Natalie. Um, I definitely didn't want to live in the dorms because I was worried about my sexuality being an issue. Like I thought if I'm with a bunch of hetero cis males, like what is what could happen and i worried about that so i was like it's a hard no um so i never even like thought that was a yeah. an experience uh, to explore personally but yeah. i was i was living off campus by the time i realized i was gay so i don't know how i would have felt if i had realized i was gay earlier than that 
I if I knew dorming was never going to be an option for me, so it, it that that thought never even occurred to me. It's just like I'm never going to dorm anyway. I can't afford it. That was just didn't have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're there, not the most positive experience <laughs> necessarily. But okay, let's talk about that. What are, what were the positives that you had, and, and how? was being part of the LGBTQ plus community, what were the positives for that during this part of your life? So I, I'm I'm proud to say that like I did really make a good I, I connected with a lot of amazing people at Seen Hall University. A lot of like minded people. And it was funny because we had an area called the commuter lounge, which was the area of people who didn't stay there. <laughs> and majority of them were people of color. <laughs> we were we were very surprised if anyone who was not a person of color was a part of that friend group because we were just like it was just it was just unheard of to have someone who wasn't a person of color in this area um but surprisingly a lot of them were also members of the lgbtq plus community i think it's because of them just seeing their their it wasn't support towards me or anything. It was just like natural support to the community that I feel like I was more open to exploring this as a possibility for me because I was still, it it didn't happen until grad school that I started to think, okay, maybe I'm gay. It took that long for me. And even then it was very difficult. I remember going to counseling and when the, the, the counselor was like, have you thought about joining the LGBTQ plus club? And I distinctly remember like starting to like cry because it was starting to set in that like, maybe I am gay. And I, I didn't want that to be my reality. So how old were you when you came to terms with all of this? I think... I started my exploration around 24 and then it wasn't until I was 25 that I was just like, yeah, I'm gay. That's big. Yeah. yeah. It's so huge. Yeah. yeah. During grad school. No. Yeah, <laughs> I had. It's like, you had, didn't you have enough on your plate? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I did, but it was also one of those things. It became a point where it was just like, I need to know. Like there was just so much going on to also have to hide that part of me and always constantly be aware of what I'm doing to try not out myself. That was just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's why, like I just had so much on my plate to also have to be constantly thinking about how I said things, my hand motions, my, how, like my articulation, I didn't want to like overemphasize like have the gay voice mm -hmm. and just having to constantly think of that in the back of my head was just so exhausting. Mm -hmm. And now thinking about it when I finally did just accept the facts, like, and not really have to care about that stuff anymore because I'm like, when, if people ask, are you gay? I'm like, yeah. Mm -hmm. And not to have to care about that was just, it's just such a relief. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, that kind of story is to me is just a reminder, you know, as a clinician to, to think about like the burdens that our clients can carry. 
um, you know, when we're expecting so much, you, you, know, you had all these other things on your plate, you know, you, you were at a school that you didn't feel like you fit in and, you know, you had all these, other, you know, you had grad school to worry about and courses and clinic and all that. And to add on top of that, like, you know, holding back a piece of yourself is just like too much, you know, and it, it took a lot of guts for you to, 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 you know, to do that during that very vulnerable sounding time in your life. So I applaud you. (laughs) And I remind our listeners that, you know, your, that your, your clients and coworkers are carrying burdens um, that you might not know about. It's a really good example of masking, you know, Mm -hmm. and what we expect for our neurodivergent clients and how exhausting that is for, you know, trying to mask, you know, that, that quote gay voice or even any, you know, super segmentals and pragmatics that we show that are, you know, signs of being gay or however it is. Um, Another way of othering, basically. And so, you know, kind of just being hyper aware that masking happens in many ways and that it is exhausting and it is very much not just even like a, you know, energy wise, but like even just like for your soul to have to hide something, you know, and then, but we ask our autistic clients to, this is how you should make a friend. This is how you should X, Y, and Z, you know, and we're, uh, there's a lot more push in our field now, you know, for neurodiversity and celebrating that, but it's, it's still, I mean, we're still qualifying people for pragmatics. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's such a great connection, Hector, um, to, to also consider when you're working with autistic patients. Yeah. It's just super exhausting when you have to hide a part of yourself and, and not be your authentic self. It's hard, you know. And I think, I, mm-hmm. you know, I would argue that every LGBT person has been there, you know, so... Kudos to you for getting through grad school while also coming out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm like blown away. This is why like normally Natalie are way more chatty, but I'm just like, I can't even imagine taking on a client and then being like, oh, let me also yes. process my sexuality at the same time. Like what? Like, you know, it brings imposter syndrome to a whole nother level. Let's just be it honest, really you know, like you're like, well, who am I? You know, and Chris, you somehow figured it out. Uh, I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong. You're still figuring it out. I'm sure you yeah. know, like, we're never going to say. <laughs> and then that was it. Um, it's not how that works. Um, but you did it. Um, so you graduated. Awesome. Kudos. Mm-hmm. You where was your CF? What setting? <laughs> So my CFO, I I was in a public school setting. I really didn't want to be in a public school setting. I told myself I was not going to be in a public school setting. And then I just kept it like months were passing. I was not finding the setting I wanted to be in. And I just caved. I was just like, I, I need a CF. I need to get this done. So I went to a public school setting. Um... And it was tough. I'm not going to lie. It was very, very difficult. This is 2018, correct? 2018. Okay. I was in a very underfunded public school setting. I was in a room, empty room, 
by myself. I was grateful I had my own room. But my first day in school, it was over 100 degrees in Jersey City. There was no air conditioning in this building. And every like parents were coming in to pick up their kids because it was just that hot in the school. And I came in like all dressed up, super excited for my first day. I ended the day with my shirt almost basically off, my like dress shirt completely unbuttoned, just showing my tank top because I at this point I was just like, I'm dying of heat in the school. Kids are literally being taken out <laughs> because there's no AC in the school and everyone is suffering. And that was my first day planning out my the rest of my time there in blistering heat in this room this empty room. And did you did you have a lot of guidance from other SLPs at this time or were you just sort of flying blind? It was a mix. Um there was one other SLP in that building with me, but she was on the second floor. She worked m- mostly with like the second floor students and I w- mostly worked with the first floor students. So she was always available to help, but for the most part I was on my own. And that was honestly Good and bad, um, because I was my own worst critic. I would judge every single one. Like, I had no one there to tell me, like, you did great. So the only person, it was just me telling myself, you could have done better. Yeah. Especially coming from grad school where, like, we're taught to, like, make everything absolutely perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was my mindset going in, like everything has to be perfect. Yeah. And that I think that's a common theme for a lot of speech therapists. And, you know, I, I also did my CF in a public school. And I wonder if you have this opinion too. Hector, you did not do your CF in no, a school. I was early intervention. That's right. So, um, Chris, I am of the opinion that graduates, recent graduates are not ready for school setting. Like in my opinion, if you're going, when you're doing your CF, you need a private practice or a clinic or someplace where you're going to have time to think and more resources. I, I kind of cringe. And I think you probably saw me cringe when you said you worked in a public school for your CF, because I am of the opinion that we should not let CFs go into a school setting. I know that maybe that's not possible because that's the greatest area of greatest need, I think. But what do you think, Chris? I agree and disagree. I think with what I did, going in, going into a public school setting on your own is a no. Um, but I think if you're in a public school setting where you're actively exposed to another SLP, mm. I think that is a better situation. Because, like I said, I was essentially on my own. Um, the other SLP, we had no overlap with our caseload. So her caseload was nowhere near the same as mine. I was working with kindergartners and she was working with like third and fourth graders. So a lot of my stuff was very play based, while a lot of her stuff was very academic based. So even when she was there to help me, she, there wasn't, so much that she can do in terms of guidance. 
Whereas now in my current placement, we actually do have a CF, but we're always working together. And if she has any questions, I'm just like, tell me, like, I, I love my team at my current setting where we are very open with what we do know and don't know. Because I, coming from how I started, where I felt like I needed to know everything, I really wanted RCF to know, hey, I don't know everything. So don't think that you need to know everything. Don't think that you need to be perfect. So if you need help, ask me. And there's probably going to be times I'm more than happy to ask you for help because I don't know everything. And that's okay. So it sounds like that, was that other SLP in your school building, was that your official like CF mentor? Or what, no. were they just happened to be the SLP that was the closest person to you? They just happened to be there. I got this placement through a, um, uh, I'm trying like to think. Agency? Agency, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people might know of EBS Healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, so they were they were honestly amazing in terms of like helping me find my placement. Um, and my my actual CF mentor, she was great. She was also a perfect person to have in the setting because most of my students were autistic and that was her area of expertise. However, she wasn't always there. When she was there, it was awesome because she would be like, like she would see what I had to go through and she'd be like, wow, that was rough. And just to like have someone, an expert in that field tell me like, that was rough, not because of anything I did, just because of everything that was going on, really helped me feel like, okay, it's not me. (laughs) It's not me. It's just circumstances that are outside of my control. If this expert is saying something is difficult and and they're saying that you're doing everything you can and you're doing a good job, even though it's not perfect, it just made me feel so much better. Yeah. I think, you know, that we all need to hear that sometimes, but I think especially our recent grads need to hear that. I think, you know, especially with social media accounts where like the perfect plan is out and look at this beautiful thing that I made from scratch in my spare time and you know <laughs> what spare time. It's like what did you like what is planning? Who plans? I don't like, even know what, what that you, word means. Yeah, I'm like, what do you want to play with today, kiddo? Like, pick something. But like, you know, you, you, you know, there's this perfectionism, and I think that you know we're we're given this idea early on in speech pathology that you have to be perfect, and um, it's so good that you had someone there to sort of you know give you that support, even though she wasn't there very often, because mm-hmm. because we often get this huge message that you've got to be perfect. There's a lot going on into it that I think impacts our field that we haven't really said out loud or are willing to say out loud. You know, we always call for more diversity, but we don't really say because of that lack of diversity, what are the things that exist within our field that get in the way of us being our authentic selves? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to think on that one, Hector, because that's really deep. (laughs) It's intense. It's intense. You know, okay, so full transparency, the district that we work at, uh, that I work at, um, 
we dig into those things. We talk about them a lot. Um, and I'm so grateful to live in such a pr progressive area that is, you know, open to having these discussions about, you know, the presence of white supremacy in the school system. Like we have that discussion, you know, mm -hmm. we have that discussion on these things that I'm like, Ooh, this is <laughs> calling out the SLP yeah. field like no other. We've mentioned that, you know, LGBT people and people of color feel like they have to outperform in order to get ahead, right? They have to perform more than other people. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that, that rings true for women too. Um, and because this is a female dominated profession, you, you do get a lot of messages of like, you know, being everything to everyone. I mean, like, that's also a thing that's put on women throughout time. Like, you know, women are not only are they expected to work full time often, but then they are expected to go home and take care of the kids and make sure that the house is clean. And like they, you know, they have these multiple roles. And I think that like, just, just like people of color or, you know, or in, you know, in SLP land, even, you know, men, you know, women are just kind of, we feel like we have to push harder and work harder and be really good and do it with a smile on our faces. Um, and I think that it, it does lead to a culture, you know, and you add, you add that onto white supremacy and in that aspect. And it, yeah, it's, it could be a lot of factors. Which is interesting as people who do not identify with that. <laughs> you're just like, like hitting your head against the wall. Cause you're like, why does this matter? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, or like, this is not me. Yeah. And you're trying to pigeonhole yourself into these roles. Chris, tell me if I'm wrong, but you kind of feel like you you never quite fit the mold. You never oh. quite, there's a, a level of like you're you're just not it. And you know, and getting away from that is so hard, especially as a new clinician. And I'm sure you felt that pressure, you know, in your CF to kind of still maintain that type A. Like yeah. you're still trying to get into grad school. I mean, even even in grad school I felt that I I was surrounded by mostly white women who I, I don't want to assume that this, but for the most part had financial like support. Um, they came from pretty stable families. And I, here I am a Hispanic male come coming from Jersey city, which is a, when, again, when, when I was going to grad school was not the best area um, single mother, just, I had a $20 to use during the week and that was it. And I distinctly remember any time, like they would, in my grad program, they discuss like additional opportunities. My first thought was how much is this going to cost? And as soon as they answer that question, I instantly know like, okay, I can't afford this. My brain shuts off. I'm just like, this isn't even an option for me. But for everyone else, it was. And I remember losing out on a lot of things that I wish I was able to do, but I knew I couldn't do in that moment. Like LSVT, like they were like, you get these awesome student discounts. And I'm like, that discount isn't enough for me. I, could, I can't afford it. My school also offered like a third placement outside of the country. Again, amazing opportunity, but I can't afford flight and room. As soon as they discussed that, I was just like, I Nope, not an option. Brain shuts off. That's like even the things that we like your cry cut or your laminator, you know, like the, 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 
<laughs> the basic tenets of a type A, you know, like... I own both of those things. <laughs> but I don't use them to make therapy materials anymore. <laughs> but, like, those are the things that we expect almost stereotypically, uh, even so. But, like, you know, like, your typical SLP is going to have all of these craft materials. Um, yeah. That costs money. Well, and, you know, you know you, even you get into a professional setting when you get out of school. You know, I graduated from, from grad school with over $100,000 in debt. And then a lot of times you're expected, oh yeah, um, a lot of times you're expected to con- to continue to pay for your education through continuing education units. Um, you know, I, I was very lucky that I landed some jobs where continuing ed was paid for. Um, you know, I remember going to LSVT and it was like my employer paid for it, but I never would have been able to afford it with the student loans that I had. You know, and I, when, you know, when you talk about like the paywall that comes with an education, you know, it continues into the professional world where, you know, you're just, you're going to be damned no matter what you do, if, unless you come from money. Um, Shout out to our annual fees. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Let's <laughs> eye roll, but yeah. Um, so what setting are you in now, Chris? So now I am in a um, multiple and complex needs setting, a a private school setting. And I I love the setting that I'm in right now because it's not your typical setting at all. And it is so hard, but at the same time, it's not... I, I like the challenge in terms of my caseload. The other challenges, just school stuff, I, I'm not a fan of. But in terms of just therapy, I love the challenge. Um, because I work with kids that have a lot going against them. And it's my job to think of how can I help them reach this absolutely basic goal as best as I can. Um, I, the, this type of setting really made me boil down the skills that some of, that anyone needs for communication. Because I have kids who are quite honestly working on those extremely foundational skills. Um, like a good example could be, I have a, I have a boy that I'm working on with AAC. He's nonverbal and we're on the, like a, Something that even my class, AAC class, and teach me, we're working on him understanding that this device helps him communicate. So is he going to walk to this device to request for something? And then is he, when he presses something, is he going to actually turn and reach for what he pressed? That's stuff that we don't even think about. I've worked with kids like that, where you're just, you're working on the smallest thing, you know, maybe it's a point or a a little vocalization or, um, you know, using a device where those small little things are so powerful. And when they get it, you're just ecstatic. Yes. (laughs) I I love working with kids like that. I have a few of those right now too. Yeah. You get those a lot with early intervention and like preschool age um but that communication matrix if you don't know what exists out there that communication matrix is a great resource 
for those early developmental, you know, signs as far as like what to look out for and work on. Because a lot of the times it feels so different than what we're, you know, it's not an Arctic student. So you're working on those lower, not lower, early developing skills. Um, and it's so hard to figure out where do you even start? Right. And it can be <laughs> you know? so subtle, right? Yeah. Like their communications can be so subtle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's awesome that you get to do that. It's That is challenging, though, because it is working at a... There's a chance there's minimal progress. Constantly. That- um, and then on top of it, it's a school for the blind. So now, take everything that we're taught in grad school, visuals, 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 and you have to completely get rid of that from your from your toolbox. It's like, okay, I can't use visuals. What do I do? And that was a huge challenge during the pandemic because we were virtual. All we have access to are visuals. How do we work with kids with visual impairments through a computer? And that was that was not sounds extremely (laughs) extremely challenging. So were you mostly mostly advising parents? Is that what it came down to? So that's how kind of how it started. But then we're deep into this pandemic. You can only advise parents on what to do so much. We actually had to start providing therapy. Mm. So it was parent-driven therapy guided by clinicians. So we would have to tell parents, okay, do this, do this, do that. And then they would have to do it. Right. And it had its ups and downs. Like, for one thing, like, I got to communicate with parents way more than I ever would have in a school setting. And I got to know them very well and see their progress at home, tackle any challenges that they have at home that I don't even get to see at the school, and really work on what was needed in the in the home Mm -hmm. sometimes it was just talking to me and telling me about what was very challenging during that week and then trying to figure out how we can maybe lighten the load for them a little bit other times it was just gun-ho therapy we're gonna do this we're gonna do this let's get it done yeah this is why i'm a huge proponent of all cfs being in early intervention because it is family oriented I've learned that my CF has been invaluable to me all these years later because it was family focused. So you have your individualized family service plan, right? So parent coaching was all you did and you learned how to meet families where they were at versus expecting the kid to perform because you're there um, or expecting a family to do this and this with this homework plan that you have this home program that you set up just because that's what you expect them to do when you're in the home, when you're just seeing them day to day and they're, and they're expressing their struggles to you, you get to take a, you know, one, it takes your ego down. Cause you're like, this is not about me and how good of a therapist I am <laughs> one. And then two, you get to be like, okay, this is where they're at. Like we don't in yeah. the schools, you don't really have that opportunity. Um, and so it's great yeah. that you have had that because that's going to serve you 
as a clinician for the rest of your career because yeah. a lot of people have a hard time with that. Well, and, and you know, er, the pandemic happened early enough in your career that you're not setting your ways like us old timers. I, you know, it's just, it would, I found teletherapy very hard, <laughs> but I, I have, I have discovered that silver lining of having more of more of access to a parent and being able to talk to them about what's going on with them and what they see, you know, and I, I've learned a lot from just parents just telling me, you know, what their kid does in a day. Cause I don't know. But I was wondering, Chris, um, to change the topic just slightly, um, in this setting and in your CF, you know, how did you feel as a queer person going into those spaces? Did you feel welcomed or not? Like, how did that, how did that go for you? I would say in my CF, it was, it was a mixed bag. I think I was just so focused on doing a good job that I didn't try to think too much of it or like I didn't have too much space to think about it. However, there was the one thing that was always in my head is just, I'm afraid of parents finding out I'm gay because that might affect the way they think of me. Uh, they it might affect the way they think I provide services where, whereas reality, like I don't think that matters at all, but to some families, it's a big deal. And that was always a worry. And also like just maybe even coworkers just maybe finding out and just not agreeing with my existence. (laughs) So are you out at all to anybody at work? At my current job? Yes. Um, In my CF placement, I very much kept that to myself. Um, but at my current job, I felt more open, mostly because we have an occupational therapist who is out himself. And just seeing him being out was just like, okay, I feel like I can, like, this seemed like a safe enough space where I can also do that as well. There, There's that having a role model and someone, you know, someone to sort of lead the way for you. You know, that representation can really matter. Um you know, not everyone feels safe being out, but when they do, it can it can lead the way for for those who might be more um, tentative about doing that. Do you feel that you know being a you know having recently you know coming to terms with your sexual orientation and where you're at on that journey? Do you feel like that? you know, how recent it is compared to how long you've been in SLP that that's a bigger factor. Like say if you had hypothetically, you know, figured all of this out earlier on, do you think you'd be more emboldened and less fearful um, coming out now? I'm honestly not sure. I think it, a lot of it has to do with just the area that I, that I'm in. Jersey city has become very progressive in terms of like, just, I get to see a lot of people who are, for lack of a better term, obviously queer. And that just makes me feel more like, okay, this is a good area to be in. Um, Our governor has been very open with having our local LGBTQ chapter, like do street art that was like rainbow flags on the streets and just making it the area feel more welcoming in that sense. So 
I feel like it did. It wouldn't have mattered how early on in my journey I would have discovered my sexual orientation. I think if it wasn't for my community changing, I felt like I might have kept that to myself. Whereas now, because I see that it's becoming more open, I'm more willing to be open as well. And that and my friend group, honestly, if it wasn't for like, I have a very amazing friend group where they really help me be who I am. And if I didn't have that, I don't think I would be as open as I am today. Uh, I love it because that's such a, I get another testament to the importance of visibility and community in, in the LGBTQ plus community, you know, and how that rep, you know, like it just changes our sense of self. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I do. I'm not a fan of like how people capitalize on it. What's that term that they use when they, um, the gay, what is that? It's recent. Does anybody know it? (laughs) If you do (laughs) type it in the comments, but (laughs) but it was a new thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's like when like private companies like banks and name it, you know, during pride and they are all about they're like like using it as like a advertising. There's a term term for it. I almost want to Google it, but it's on the tip of my brain. Gosh, I know what you're talking about though. It's like using using the gay community to advertise yeah like we're um, all about pride during then yeah and it's then like we, and then after that. june is over um we do not hear from them again until next june mm-hmm. or are we contribute to policies and government officials who vote against gay you know yeah it's um, very surface it's a very surface very false support um, which we'll is keep thinking about the term, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like when I lived in Seattle, there came a point where I stopped going to pride because I couldn't stand the corporate atmosphere. Um, it just drove me crazy. And, and I, so I just stopped going. Yeah. Uh, I, I am able to go to New York city pride, but I, I wouldn't say for just that reason that I want to go, I, I don't go. It's also just like, it's so big that a lot of times you're just standing in the same spot for hours in a crowd. And I'm just like, that's not fun for me. <laughs> well, and you, you, yeah, I mean, you, you sound like you don't like big crowd party atmospheres. You sound more of like an introvert and maybe someone who would enjoy a conversation with a, like a few people, you know, like this kind of situation where we're just discussing stuff. I'm than... very much a homebody. Yeah. <laughs> Rainbow washing. Rainbow washing. I just Googled it. Mid-episode. <laughs> I can't help it. I was like, what is that term? It's going to bug me. Like other people are saying it's like pride for sale and all that stuff. But I've heard rainbow washing is a term that people yeah. use uh, to describe what corporations do. So, I mean, there's visibility, but then there's like, it's laced with capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that's where it's like, oh. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm glad that you feel... You know, and it's an interesting thing to note that you said yourself that like it didn't matter how far along you'd been in your your journey of coming to terms with your identity that you still feel that as a professional, it's, you know, there's a, a feeling of this is a risk uh, of coming out no matter how, you know, because again, myself, Natalie, whoever, it doesn't matter how long we've identified, like I've known since I was young (laughs) and it's still like, I don't even, I think that might have like increases 
increase the intensity of my feeling of yeah. <laughs> trepidation with when coming out at work. Um, but yeah, it's a yeah interesting I'm, perspective. Even now, I don't. I I would say I I come out to my coworkers because these are people that I'm with on a daily, but I still do not come out to families. I completely avoid the topic of my partner with, especially during COVID, like I got to see into their houses. They got to see into my house. I tried my best to cover up my, my part. I I hate to say it, my partner as much as I possibly could, because I was still afraid of families Mm -hmm. just thinking any less of me because of my identity. Yeah. That hurts my heart. It hurts my heart too. Because I, I, I think yeah. I res- that resonates with me. Yeah. Um, I know that you said that a lot, Hector, that that, that fear is so real. And I, I honestly think that it's more of a fear that happens with men than it does with women. Um, I don't know why we could unpack that, but um, yeah. I don't, yeah. I also, you know, I mean, it's not funny, but it's also funny that when you said you hide your partner and I immediately thought of you like throwing a sheet over him, (laughs) 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 like just, just sit still for an hour while I talk. (laughs) Okay. That's where my brain went. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad for some levity because that's, that's hard. And that's a very real thing that, um, I think specifically male SLPs deal with, but yeah. um, specifically male SLPs of color mm-hmm. um, when it comes to cultural and, you know, societal terms of what it is to be masculine yeah. um, and, and, and a professional. Um, but yeah. I'm curious what you think about <sighs> oftentimes we are called as people of marginalized status to be the example and to be the positive example for others because you're, quote, paving the way. Or what if there's another student who happens to be dealing with their sexuality? And what if they see you and that as much as of that, you know, and I'm just saying this full transparency to anybody who's listening, like, that is a wonderful gift. Don't get me wrong. And that's a lot of power that I respect, but it is also a tremendous burden to take on. What do you feel about that dynamic because you know as you said like at this point in time you're still in a space of you know wanting to hide your partner out of fear um do you feel like that is like a an extra burden that you uh, you know like that people subconsciously ask you to take on i i see what you mean i think i've taken on that burden myself actually because I didn't have that role model, I wanted to be that role model for some people. I think it was more so just because I've gotten to a point where I've just been a mix of it. I hate to say it this way, but it's true. I think, especially when it comes to having interns and CFs, I already have my job. I, I'm already out to my coworkers. I already know like I'm doing what I need to do. And I'm more than happy to like talk about my partner in front of my interns and my CF because in my head, like I've already, I'm already, I don't care what you think. I've already gotten to where I am. I, everything's set. And so the worst that can happen is that they're not happy with 
they, they don't like my lifestyle and they have to deal with it because I'm still their, <laughs> their supervisor. Best case scenario, I am making them feel more comfortable. And who knows, maybe I have an intern who is a part of the LGBTQ plus community and they don't even know it yet or they're just hiding it. And maybe I've just made the environment that much more comfortable for them. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, you mentioned CFs and I thought back to, you said that you had a CF in, in your clinic and how you wanted to give her the experience that you didn't have, which I can really relate to because I feel the same way about, um, students as I really want to give them the best possible, you know, and it, and in my mind, CFs are still students, by the way. Um, you know, so I, I want to give them the best possible experience because I had such crappy ones. Um, and it sounds like maybe it's the same as a, a queer person that, you know, you, you don't know, you know, what your CF situations are, but you want to give LGBT speech therapists a better situation than you had. Um, and hopefully dispel that feeling of needing to hide, um, for the future. Yeah. And that's also something, a reason why I also started my private practice. Um, I, I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but I do have my own private practice where I do gender affirming voice work for the trans and non-binary community. And there, that, believe it or not, that, well, now I feel like it's believable, but like that is nearly non-existent, even in this area um, near New York barely any providers. And that's why I waited so long for my CF position. I was just like, I'm going to do voice. I'm going to do gender affirming voice work. Like I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I, I couldn't find anything, nothing. Well, kudos to you for starting your own private practice, you know, cause, cause it is needed. Um, and yeah, it isn't, it, it isn't as ubiquitous as it should be. It's the opposite of ubiquitous. Yeah. And that's the thing I wanted when I was in grad school, I knew I wanted to head somewhere in that direction, but there was nothing, there was nothing there. Um, everything, everyone just kept pushing me into a school, a school, a school or a hospital, hospital, hospital. And there was no voice clinics that I can go to. Or like if they were, they weren't taking interns or CFs. So I was just like, that's not fair. Because there's so many people who go into speech therapy because they want to do voice. But there's just, even in the East Coast, in like near New York, where you would think like there has to be a plethora of it, there's barely anything. So that's ultimately why I decided to make my private practice. I, I knew that if I wasn't going to find somewhere to get that experience, I'm just going to have to do it myself. And yeah. hopefully I can, hopefully I get, I hope that I get to the point where I open my own space and can start to take in grad students to help them start their journey on their own. You manifested it. Yeah. <laughs> You're making it happen. <laughs> I think it's a great, I mean, example of I, you know, I got into this not knowing that gender affirming voice therapy was a thing, right? And then once you're like, you take your voice class and you're like, what? And then you're like, I want to show up for my community. 
and you learn that oh wait this field does like my community is non-existent (laughs) because like even though that's in our scope of practice hardly anybody does it right and there aren't actual professionals within our field that identify within that community you know on the board or you know you know in places of academia at least not you know it's not a big number yeah um so i think that's a big example of how with little representation the idea that that's just a niche that is you know you're not going to find that this is not a thing da, 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 all that you hear in grad school mm-hmm. it's because it's almost like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy they keep telling you it's not a thing and they're like then yeah. it's not a thing unless like oh how can we you know curate that for you yeah. how can we help foster that so that that is something that you can find regardless of where it's at in the country yeah. um can i tell you a quick uh, story time about that's not a thing and it's very niche Quick side story, <laughs> yes, story time. Yes. Okay, so once upon a time in 1998, I took my very first language class in undergrad, and we had to write a report, and I chose Asperger's. And you know what the professor told me? <laughs> You'll never see a person with Asperger's in your career. It's so rare. You should pick another topic. Well, I ignored what? him. I ignored him because I'd heard of Asperger's, and I had... You know, and I was like, I want to learn more about it. And so I ignored it and I did the, yeah, 1998. It's so niche. You'll never hear about it. It's so rare. Well, guess what? The gays are coming <laughs> and we're bringing our trans friends. Yes, uh-huh. that's exactly it. Like, yeah, the community is asking for it. Therefore, they want it. People want it. A, yes. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it's through this work that I feel my most authentic self because in school, I am deathly afraid of revealing my identity to my clients, my the families that I work with. Whereas with my trans and non-binary clients, I'm more than happy to say, oh yeah, my partner, my partner to this, my partner that I'm gay, because I feel like that just solidifies maybe not solidifies but that makes them feel more comfortable with me like i'm a part of this community maybe i'm i know i'm not trans or non-binary but i am a part of the lgbtq plus community i don't know exactly what you're going through i never will but i've gone through some of those hardships myself and i am willing to be here for you and support you that and you're not masking yeah, like, like truly goes back to that idea of masking that we talked about earlier in the episode of how exhausting that was for you as a child and not even really f- knowing what that was, um, but not wanting to appear or come off as gay, you know, as a professional, it's still a thing, you know, and LGBTQ plus identifying SLPs still have to mask, you know, we might get to a place where we feel comfortable or confident enough to 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 be out and to be our authentic self, but make no mistake that fear still is there. Oh, you yeah. know, like you can, <laughs> you might be 99%, you know, confident, but 1% of you is going to be like, Oh, is this shit going to hit the fan? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, how is this going to bite me in the, you know, um, in the tuchus? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, it doesn't go away. It, I think it gets easier. And you, you, you start like Chris, you mentioned that like, you care less about that yeah. with certain people. 
right? It's just like, whatever. I think I've gotten there most of the time. But Hector, you said that, you know, there's always that at least 1% of you that's like, is this going to go badly for me? And that still happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that thought still goes through my mind, even with like interns and CFs. Like if I like there's still that chance that they're completely against the LGBTQ plus community, but they're going to have to suck it up and deal with it. But I know I'm also going to have a really hard time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And mama, that's trauma. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what that is. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. it's trauma and it's, it's, you know, working through the trauma. Yeah. Working through it. So it, it just keeps coming back up, but you know, we're it's so, it's such a unique placement one that you're in right now. Um, uh, in so many ways. Um, what is your caseload, by the way? <laughs> so I will say, thankfully, my caseload is very manageable compared to a public school setting. I went from a caseload of over 30 plus kids in my CF to a caseload of about 25, and that's like about max. So it's very, <laughs> very... So indiv- small. That's so yes. small. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like you could do good therapy with right? that. You have yes. time. <laughs> yes. And plan. That word that we talked about. Uh, I don't know about therapy. planning, but therapy, yes. I actually have like productive therapy very much so because a lot of our kids have like, I know in public schools, it's like, give them group. Like you, you don't have any choice but to give them a group because otherwise it's not going to fit on your caseload. Here, a lot of our kids, it's just like, if you want to, put them in a group you have to have a really good reason to put them in that group right. Otherwise, so therapeutic it's gonna... reason not a necessity yes. exactly so a lot of my kids are very individual not to say that they're always the most productive <laughs> therapy <laughs> sessions given the population i work with i have kids if they're not feeling it they're not feeling it and we're sitting mm-hmm. in a room and i'm listening to them cry for 30 minutes <laughs> you're, you're meeting them where they're at yes exactly. you're meeting where Max they are <laughs> maybe you can shed a tear with them but don't cry in your car That's yeah not no what. crying oh in gosh. your car nope. oh my gosh i don't even have a car to cry into i just have to suck it up <laughs> no crying on the bus either <laughs> no, no transportation crying at all yes <laughs> But I, I tackle a lot of the, the hardships in my placement with comedy. Um, a lot, like I'm very, I guess, cynical with my kids, even if it goes over their heads. Like if a kid is saying no to me, I'm just like, oh well, I guess. Like I guess we're not going to play playing that game that you really want to play. Yeah, and whether or not they understand it or not, it's just it just helps me cope. Mm-hmm. But it also, like, I still do exactly what I would do. Like, if a kid's crying and refuses to press a button to get that toy that they really want, I guess they're not going to get that toy that they really want. Mm-hmm. Instead of me just being there, hating my life, I'll, I'm going to be there and have fun and make some, crack some jokes, even if it's just me in the room with yeah. the kid. I guess it looks like I'm not the only one who copes with things through making a joke. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Throw the sheet over your partner. <laughs> i mean how good i mean I, okay this is like i'm not a bad therapist i promise listeners but sometimes <laughs> it's good to give like a, a kiddo who is giving it to you and you're like well we're not gonna play that game or oops oh, yeah it's broken oh, well. <laughs> you know, like, 
sorry. It went on vacation. Sorry. <laughs> like the, the taxi's in the garage. It needs to get fixed. Like can't play that. You know, take I mean, something else. A good example is like I had a kid who threw their food and they're like, all right, you're not getting lunch then. I mean, like it's the reality of things. And I think a lot of people think that like, oh, you're like, you're being so mean to them. I'm like, if you threw your food, if you're in a restaurant and you throw your food, do you, do you really expect the restaurant owners to give you a second plate? It's like, no, you just threw your food. You're not getting it. And that's a real world experience. Whether these kids truly understand that or not, we can't always cater to these behaviors just because a child is crying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting thing. I, I saw a meme. Or maybe it was an article, wasn't it? Maybe. Uh, but it basically said that in the eyes of society, if you live with a disability, you are only ever, there's two ways of living. It's either you're celebrated, and that's through hardship or Paralympics or you name it, right? It's some, it's some wonderful story of achievement, or you don't exist at all. You know, and so within that realm, having natural consequences, having these daily interactions is a way for it, it's I'm not trying to other a person with a, and I'm saying quotations disability because how, <laughs> how else should I treat you with kid gloves? You know, like yeah. walking around you with eggshells. Like I understand you're still a person and you might be having a tantrum right now, but that doesn't mean that I should treat you as if um, that, that you won't, also have to face some of these you know expectations that are placed upon you Um, i mean yeah the more you the more you treat people with kid gloves the more likely you are to get that learned helplessness Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like if i if i throw my food and they feed me again well you know then i I don't have to do anything they just gonna put more food in front of me Mm -hmm. i mean i remember how i had a kid via teletherapy who Mom has a lot on her plate. I don't want that to go under the rug at all. She did, was managing a lot, but for this kid, all I wanted him to do was listen to a story. That was all we had to do. I didn't want to ask questions. He didn't have to analyze anything. We were just going to sit there and try and listen to that story. And we couldn't even do that. And I quite honestly had to tell mom, okay, he did. And it, it was blatant refusal of, I don't want to listen to this story. So I had to ask mom, all right, what are you doing later today? Oh, she's like, okay, I think we're going to the park. I was like, okay, so you have to have your child listen to this story before they go to the park. Because this is a student who has very high skills. Like I have, like I had to tell mom, like he can do this. Like he can answer these questions. He can answer complex questions. It's just today he doesn't feel like it. And all he has to do is sit there for three minutes and listen to that story. And then you can go to the park. I'm not asking anything big. And it felt very hard for me to give that advice to the parents. But at the same time, I think some parents, not all of them, don't even realize what their child's are cap- what their t- children are capable of doing. I'll be like, he can do this story. And I've, I've done two stories in therapy in a 30-minute session. So the fact that he is unable to sit for three minutes to listen to the story is in my eyes, like, that's a no, like you're, you're just choosing not to, you can do it. So we're not going to just give you a reward because you chose not to do something. Like 
I have to go to work and do what I want to do if I want to get paid. I, I can't just throw a tantrum and still get my paycheck. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? If you just stomped your feet and said, no, I'm not going to work now. Give me my money. <laughs> I do that every week. I would love that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel like I have to put a lot of these things in perspective for parents and even interns. Um, for one thing is like a lot of our students need their own coping mechanisms just for for everyday things that we can look past like a loud noise sometimes our kids need their their stims to help them cope and i hate it when i see goals that say that we're going to reduce stimming oh. i hate it because i always tell i always tell people like everyone stims it's just some of us do it are, it's just easier for us to mask some of our stimming than others. I've been stimming this entire time. I've been playing with a pen and turning it and twisting it. I've been tapping my foot. I've been playing with my watch. Those are all stims. Doodling. <laughs> Doodling. Yeah. And they just, a lot of people have a hard time putting it in that perspective. It's because I don't think anyone would... Nobody would. I would. I, I would love it if people were like, "You can't doodle anymore, Natalie." Uh, right? <laughs> or you know what? I you know every every like staff meeting that I ever went to, I brought knitting with me. Yes, you were. I always right? saw you. Knitting. You saw me knitting. It always right? distracted me, but in a good way. Because I was like, "What is she knitting?" Making something pretty. But you know, yeah, it's like we all stim. Like if I didn't have the knitting in a meeting, I would be really fidgety and mm-hmm. and and distracting. More distracting than what is she doing? It's yeah. On a, another subject um, related to you know, we talked about your placement in the school for visually impaired. I mm-hmm. believe is the term we're using. Creating your own private practice specifically catered towards gender affirming voice therapy. You know, admittedly, a lot of our community want to uplift and support our own community members. Like, that's just the beautiful thing about being part of, you know, I can't, and I can't speak for all, you know, members, but I will say that's, you know, a big part of why people want to do um, voice um, for this population. So, one, what was that like getting off the ground, starting, getting clients? You know, we just, our last guest was all about starting your own private practice, which is awesome. And you're doing it. But now it's from a lens of like, not just every client, like, are are you specifically only taking on voice clients for gender affirming voice? Or are you taking like Arctic and all that other stuff as well? For now, I've only been focusing on gender affirming voice clients, because that's really what I wanted to start this practice for. That's why I started it. However, I do have one client that I like, decided I was like, they're not gender affirming voice. It's actually like a pediatric client. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'll do it. Like the mom was very adamant and I was like, okay, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll do it. But other than that, it's only gender affirming voice because I get, like I said, there's, there's art, there's private practices for just our tick. There's private practices for just, um, the elderly population for, for the autistic population, but there's very little that revolve around gender affirming voice, or at least start in that direction. Um, I've thought about it very hard and I'm thinking like, do I just want to do gender affirming voice or do I want that to be my main focus? And I think I want that to be my main focus. However, I, uh, I will be more open to other types of voice clients in the future. But 
for sure, I do want it to be gender affirming voice. Want to not only contribute to that field in and of itself, it's so undervalued and under supported in terms of like research and other like opportunities for students to learn about, but also to just give back to the community. I, as me coming out and feeling like I was able to come out because of the community, I just felt like I, I wanted to do something to support, to give, give, give back to it in any way that I possibly could. You're also doing that by coming onto our podcast and talking about your story, (laughs) giving back to the community. Do you have tips for anybody that like wants to start and, or like get clients? Because I imagine Yes, if you're looking for it, you're going to find it. But if for the lay person who wants to start at their own, you know, practice or even um, if you are transgender, you're looking for a voice therapist. How do you do that? Google? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's Google. And even I know I, I haven't checked in a minute, so I can't say if this is for sure. But I know ASHA, they they allow like you can like outside people can use ASHA to search for clinicians, I don't think they have an option for like gender affirming voice. It's still very broad and just voice as far as I, I'm assuming hmm. it, it could even be more I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I could say I'm surprised, but, <laughs> um, but my tip to anyone who is looking to even do this is just honestly take one step at a time. Your everyone's journey is not your journey. I know I I used as many resources as I possibly could, and at first I felt like I'm falling behind because I'm seeing all these people who are like, I started my private practice uh, a year ago. I know I have my own space, and I'm like, I just got my first client. And I started way earlier than you did, but that's just your journey is it's your journey, and it takes as long as it needs to be. They were ready. Maybe you're still getting ready. I mean, I technically started my private practice in 2020. I did not get my first client until 2021. Just because once I once I started my private practice, it became real to me. And I was just like, I didn't feel like I was ready. Like I there was I no one taught me how to do gender affirming voice. Like I knew maybe a couple of things, but I was just like, I don't know if I have a client in front of me, what am I going to do? So I took that entire year to just read. I got textbooks, looked up research articles, joined Facebook groups, went to trainings, took anything that I possibly could take that could even remotely be translated into gender affirming voice and used it or tried it out. I even did my own voice journey. Like I, I took vocal lessons to try and get a better sense of my voice because that's a, another big deal. In school, you don't realize, they, they tell you all these things about what to do for voice therapy, but half the time they don't tell you to actually do it. So I was just like, I need to be able to control my voice a little bit better so I can somewhat be a good example for these clients, especially because the the people that paved the way of gender affirming voice are cis female and a big number of people who are seeking out these service are trans females. So they already have a great model to work off of. 
I couldn't be that model or I didn't know how to be that model because I'm a cis male. I have a relatively male passing voice. So I needed to be able to alter my voice as best as I possibly can. It's still not perfect, but so I can somewhat be a model for, for these clients. And that took me over a year and I'm still on that journey in, in all honesty. The only reason why I kind of even went further was because I had everything set up. Like I was technically able to take clients. I just never really promoted myself. I was just like, I'm here. And if someone finds me, they had to really dig for me and someone found me. And it just took that one client. She, she, I was very upfront with her saying that like, you're my very first private client. Um, this is going to be a journey for me as much as it's going to be for you. And she trusted in me. And it was because of her that I was able to really take on more clients and be more comfortable providing that service. Honestly, she has been, she was a blessing because she, she was always just like, okay. Or like, I'll be like, I took this new course. I want to try this with you. And you tell me what you think. And she like, I could just be that open with her and she'd be like, let's do it. And like, she'll like, tell me exactly like what she thought about it. And she's like, no, I like what we were doing last time. Like that just felt better for me. And I was just like, okay, like, we'll go with that. Um, but it took me a whole year to get to that point. And like I said, I'm still on that journey. I'm, I don't think I, by any means my private practice is perfect, but it's what it needs to be for my purposes. What I did, and I, I don't want to talk bad about myself because what I didn't know a year or two ago, I didn't know. And I can't, I, I can't be mad at myself for not knowing something. And, but now I do know it and I'm able to provide a much more refined service as I can. And that's why I'm always trying to expand my knowledge and just be, do whatever I can to better provide this service. That's again, just so uh, like just thrown under the rug. Yeah. What a Lady Gaga moment. Like, <laughs> not to be stereotypical here, but do you remember? I don't know. If, okay, I'm sure anyone listening would probably get this, but like, remember when she was like a star is born and she was touring and she was like, there could be a hundred people in the room that don't believe you, but all it takes is one person that could change your whole life. Your client was that one person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That is, you had a Lady Gaga moment. That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for her, I honestly don't think I would have jumped into promoting myself more because that's the other thing. Like, I, I, I'm, I have to do to learn. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't get a lot of that experience in, like, I, I didn't get a voice placement. I, I didn't get any of that experience, hands-on experience. So everything I learned was through textbooks and research yeah. and trying it Same. out myself. Well, you know, sometimes showing up for the work is is what matters and then you learn it as you go. Um, it sounds like you have a great relationship with that client. I'm so glad that you have her to, to, uh, to practice with. And, you know, I'm sure she gets a lot about it out of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she graduated. That was so. That was such a hard. Oh, she met her goals. Yay! She met her goals. <laughs> it got to the point where we were having like I. I told her I was just like, 
I don't know what else we can work on. You've met all your goals. What do you want to work on? And she sh- she'll tell me what we want to work on. And it just got to the point where we were literally just talking. And mm-hmm. I was just like, you were using that that awesome voice for 45 minutes straight. And I'm just constantly reminding her, we did it again. Awesome time, 45 minutes straight. Like, yeah, you dipped a little bit, but you caught yourself. I didn't have to say anything. And like, I, I was always very upfront with her. I was just like, you should think about ending services with me because you've been meeting all your goals. And we finally, if that day finally came and she's just like, okay, I think, I think I'm comfortable ending services with you, but we, we still keep in touch. She, like I said, she was an amazing person to work with. That's awesome. Yay. I'm feeling (laughs) the warm fuzzies. Right. I'm like, I, I love a good happy ending. Yeah. Um, and we've been we've been talking for an hour and a half so she we should probably speaking of <laughs> Yes, we will probably start wrapping it up. Wrap it up. Uh, but we yes. do have some some ending questions that we like to ask. Hector, can you ask one? Yeah, I, <laughs> my, my my brain went blank again. I'm like, there is uh, a question. Totally. Yeah. So again, everybody is unique. Your your journey is unique and I'm curious to know what does it mean to you to be a proud professional? What does that even mean for you? You know, and, and have you figured it out or are you still figuring it out? I think I'm still figuring it out, but what I keep telling myself, my, my own mantra is your, your journey is your own. And even though it's very uncomfortable for me to to take that my own advice with that because again we're in the age of social media i get to see all these amazing therapists meet their goals way faster than i do i just have to constantly remind myself like i'm on my own journey they're on their own journey my journey is to give back to the community and be happy with where i am and do what i am comfortable doing in that moment to reach my goals and to give back to who I want to give back to. And like I said, for everyone that is completely different. So I hope to be an inspiration to others, but not to be the example. I don't want you to do exactly what I'm doing. I want you to take what I'm doing and learn that, know that it's hard. I'm very uncomfortable doing some of the things that I'm doing, but I was able to do it and you can too. I love it. Natalie, do you have another one? <laughs> or do you want me to go? Oh, again? oh. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Um, how, can, how can our listeners um, find you out in the world? Yeah. So you can, my private practice is called CD speech therapy. Um, my website is cdspeech.com. I also have Instagram. My Instagram is CD Speech Therapy. <laughs> you can find me there. Um, I'm very open to just emails and DMs if you have any questions. I'm I'm not one of those people that like you need to make an appointment to speak with me. You can ask away. I'm very open. I, I'm a chatterbox. If you haven't noticed, we've been speaking for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it's been great. So. Yeah. Um, Chris, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And and hopefully, you know, you're our first Jersey 
I think. We haven't had anybody else from Jersey. No, I don't think so. Um, so our goal, you know, we just want <laughs> as many SLPs in other parts of the world to kind of know that there is a community out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and that we're, like you said, we're all on our own journey, you know, so. Hector, should we get a map us. and put little pins in it? I would love a map. That'd be I mean, awesome. <laughs> just to be like, where are you from? Drop it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll throw it out there. Yeah. Um, because I think it would be a good idea. Um, or at least an Asha census. You know. Uh, <laughs> just to be included on the just, Asha just census. Just give Asha a little bit of info. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, with that in mind, um, thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Join us next time on the Queer SLP. Yes. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.